0: Welcome to Mental Health Uncovered, a show dedicated to having candid everyday conversations about mental health. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Mental Health Uncovered. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Joanne McAfee Maldonado. And I tried to go through at the very beginning of this interview and get all of the words correctly. And I'm still not doing well, but I want to do the best that I can. I am so happy to have Joanne because I really think that she's been through some serious things that are going to be really insightful for other people to hear. Um, she's a native Delawarean residing on the seeded lands of the Nanatecote. Nan- yes. I see. I'm getting better. And... Lunape uh, tribes. See, there it is. She lives in Delaware with her husband Carlos and two adult children. She served in roles such as youth pastor, assistant pastor, Bible study teacher, and healing ministry facilitator but left the traditional church in 2019 to follow a version of Jesus that was not defined by politics. After attending immigration law courses at Villanova, how do you say the university? Villanova. There it is. Um, University. She began serving as an immigrant advocate and immigration specialist. She facilitates discussion groups and that are focused on racial healing and honoring each person's lived experiences. She's been in the deconstruction reconstruction process for two years and has grown greatly in her capacity to love others. And because of this empowering story, we are so happy to have her on the show. Joanne, how are you doing today?
1: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Can you tell me a a little bit about your story and how this all got started?
1: Sure. So my parents were actually both addicts and they were teenagers when I was born. So, you know, that had all sorts of things that came along with it, not even being adults yet, not really having great adults to mimic in their own lives. And then also just dealing with addiction. So mm-hmm. then the responsibility of a baby, I'm sure it was very stressful at you know as kids. But that being born um, to parents that are addicts definitely comes with, you know, its its own automatic baggage. <laughs> because you learn um very quickly that You know, the adults in your life are not really able to care for you the way that you might need or protect you or just have it together. You know, they maybe they don't get up out of bed to make meals for you. You know, maybe they aren't aware when you wander out the front door and down, down the road, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. these kinds of things. So I'm not saying I had those experiences. I'm just saying that that's you know, that's pretty typical reality. Yeah.
0: Right. It's a reality for a lot of people that are growing up in those types of homes. You mentioned that your parents were teenagers when they had you. How, how old were they?
1: My mom was 16 when she got pregnant and then she turned 17 and had me a couple months later. And my dad was 17 when I was born. Okay. Yeah. So almost 18. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They were kids. Yep. (laughs) And when you say addicts, tell us a little bit about what you mean by that.
1: So my mother, her whole life, she, I guess, if, if she wasn't abusing prescriptions, she was usually doing like cocaine, sometimes crack. She definitely smoked a lot of weed. But of course, we know that that, you know, is not necessarily a gateway drug or that it, you know, it does have a lot of benefits to it. So I don't want to say that like, oh, I don't want to vilify it. But it is just part of the story that she smoked a lot of weed. My father was, and, and still is actually His story is very sad. I don't know him very well because he kind of checked out after I was about eight years old and I didn't see him again until I was 25. But Oh, wow. Yeah. And he's always lived in the same small state of Delaware, but he's been in and out of prison because of his addiction. So because my father, when he's kind of on a binge, will do really erratic things like rob banks or... Um, Walgreens for Percocets or things like that. So my mom, on the other hand, was extremely high functioning as, as an addict and would, she ended up always getting these jobs that normally people have to go to school for, but she was just really smart and she would pick up on things quickly. And most of the time people had no idea that she was an addict, but she, you know, unless she was in like a really bad place where she was taking way too much prescriptions and just kind of out of it which didn't really happen until later in her life but yeah so it just initially it was really just kind of weed and I can even remember as a kid like helping my mom to package weed because she sold it so Mm -hmm. like I can remember like raking seeds over a screen and you know like or raking the weed over the screen to get the seeds out and then you know, putting it in the baggies. I knew where she kept it. So, like, if people came to the door and she was busy, I would go grab a bag, you know, exchange it for the money. <laughs> and I was, like, five. So, yeah. yeah. Right.
0: Now, you mentioned that your dad left at age eight. So that that's probably a pretty big, and then returned at age 25. That's a pretty big gap. So tell me about what that was like growing up in a single-parent household.
1: Well. So actually, they broke up when I was two, but my dad would still come for visitation here and there until I was eight. Okay. And then he kind of completely disappeared after that. When I was a kid, I don't remember this, but my mom tells me that I would tell people that my dad was dead because it was easier than explaining why he wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Um, I did live with grandparents, so my grandfather kind of filled in that role for me. But I definitely, as an adult looking back now, can recognize that there were some serious abandonment issues from my dad just taking off. And then there were periods of time, too, where my mom wasn't there. Like She would live other places, and I would just stay with my grandparents for sometimes years of my childhood. Well,
0: I'm so happy that you had your grandparents, right?
1: Oh my gosh, yes.
0: Because you could have been in a situation where you were stuck in that situation uh, without having a safe harbor. Uh, were your grandparents a pretty good support? Was that a safe environment?
1: Yes. I. So my grandmother was actually my grandfather's second wife. So she okay. was kind of like my step-grandmother. But I always tell people she was like June Cleaver, like she baked the cupcakes, you know, and brought them to school on my birthday. She came to all my softball games. She, you know, if I came home from school and she kind of felt like something was going on with me, she would stop what she was doing and sit down and like pull me into her lap and say, you know, come on talk to me. And she was just really wonderful. And I've always been so grateful that she gave me that because You know, my experience of what mom looks like before then was just kind of, you know, not that my mom didn't try. Like, I know she loved me, but I just think that one, being a kid and two, just not having a good relationship with her own mother Mm -hmm. or having any type of nurturing poured into her. She really just didn't know how to do it.
0: Well, and when we look at substance use, that can also play a really big role in that you're you're focused on on use and when you're gonna get your next fix rather than being present. I don't really like the word addict so much because it's pejorative, but I understand what you're saying when you say that. So in that situation, you were kind of forced into an environment that was not safe for you, you did not feel. Especially, I mean, you were too young probably to be able to say, this is unsafe. But looking back on that, sounds like your grandparents recognized that as well and were able to kind of sweep in and and provide that environment. Is that Am I hearing that correctly?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so when I lived with my grandparents, even though it was a very safe place where I felt like my childhood was kind of reinstated, my mom would pop up here and there. She mm-hmm. would come. Sometimes she would want to visit. Other times it would be because somebody was kind of Dumping her off on the doorstep because she'd overdosed and my okay. grandfather would have to run her to the hospital. Mm-hmm. From there, she would, you know, this happened probably a handful of times in my childhood, but each time she would come back from the hospital, she would flush everything, she would, you know, feel so great, like, okay, I got a new start, I have an, another chance to, you know, to get myself straightened out, and and then she'd probably stay three or four days. And of course my, my grandparents and my great grandmothers who both lived with us were very religious. So my mom would kind of tap into that whole thing while she was there and, you know, go to like prayer meetings with them and things like that. And so she would, she would have this like really high, high of like, I'm going to do everything right now. I'm going to, you know, like I'm going to start over. It's going to be great. And then she would leave and go back into the same environment that she was using. in. And then, of course, you know, it wasn't long before she'd be using again. Right. So
0: it's very, very hard. And for most people that are looking at getting out of that environment and changing, it takes several attempts to really to really make a change. So it's not too surprising. But I'm assuming that from your perspective as the kiddo in this environment, that this was extremely disheartening.
1: It was, but at the same time, because I had this, like you said, safe haven of my grandparents house, Mm -hmm. definitely didn't affect me as, as negatively as it could have. And honestly, I mean, as the child, I didn't really understand everything that was happening. You know, I I knew that my mom would get kind of, you know, out there sometimes I knew that drugs were the reason I had been exposed to different things. But I didn't, you know, I didn't have any understanding of, like you're saying, how difficult it was or, or what a struggle it was on a daily basis. And I also really didn't understand that she, I'm sure, was her, her worst critic in all of it, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I just knew that as a kid that I had certain expectations of her right. and that she wasn't able to meet them.
0: You wanted your mom and your mom exactly. wasn't present. Absolutely. And
1: growing up in religion, I think also kind of primed me to be very judgmental in that situation. I look back at that now and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I really didn't, I mean, I didn't understand and I was just really hard on her, yeah. you know? So yeah.
0: so let's focus in on you. So we've talked quite a bit about your mom, but what I'm here to do is interview you and what your experiences are. So it sounds like going through that, that was very difficult. Did you end up um, in that environment with your grandparents jumping in on uh, the religious aspects of of your, par- of your grandparents' faith as a way of survival?
1: I did. And I actually, um, not too long ago, I wrote the foreword for a friend's book that talked about how Religion actually kind of grooms us for, well, I'm sorry, trauma grooms us for religion, in my opinion, because I think that we're so desperate to feel some type of normalcy and some type of structure that we fall into this. This mindset that if we can be part of this community and we can be accepted in, in some way, and maybe even if we can like do all the things and check all the boxes and, you know, and be all the things that we're supposed to be, that that all of those things that we never got will now be mm-hmm.
2: ours. right? Mm-hmm.
1: So I definitely think that if I had not suffered different traumas, that I I may not have chosen that, you know, it may not have been as appealing
0: the fact that you were living with your grandparents and they're very religious, I mean, you were primed for that environment, it sounds like. So tell me about, I mean, so you were essentially there. Were you there until you graduated? Until you graduated, Or what was your experience? No. I don't know if you went to school or didn't go to school, because I remember you're living in, a, in an interesting area, so I, I don't want to assume anything. So tell me what your experience <laughs> is like growing up with your grandparents so I don't, Uh, make a judgment on here
1: yeah so they interesting enough they were okay so they were religious but it wasn't like we see with like mainstream like evangelical type you know like baptist or pentecostal or it was a little more subdued they they did have a strong faith in god and they did usually bring god into different things and they did you know read their bible and things like that but it wasn't it wasn't as intense as what I experienced later in life being, you know, in the more mainstream evangelical type churches, but they, they definitely were good people. And I, you know, as far as like being a child in that situation, they definitely created a very safe place for me to grow up and to kind of grow through some things. Um, The thing is, I did not, I didn't even know that I, had trauma or or wasn't able to identify it as such until about a year and a half ago oh, so
2: really?
0: okay
1: i just kind of lived on autopilot like doing what i knew to do to kind of get through mm-hmm. and and just didn't i just wasn't very self-aware or you know hadn't had enough information about why certain things are the way they are or my responses to things, why I might be responding to things the way that I do. So,
0: Okay. So, tell me your journey here. So, you kind of covered your childhood and what that was like. Tell me about adolescence and then moving into young adulthood.
1: So, as an adolescent, I was pretty um, into church. Uh, I went to a Baptist high school. Okay. And I did live with my mom during that time. She was still using, but she had married a man that was pretty well off. And so she wanted to be able to send me to private school. And the only private school that she was okay with was was this Baptist school. So that, it had, you know, good points and bad points. It was It was pretty strict, but at the same time, I still have a lot of good friends. From there, I still keep in touch. I mean, thanks to social media. I still visit with some of them from time to time. But overall, and I mean, we were all really goofy kids. Like we just did stupid stuff all the time and just cracked up. And, you know, it was always like who could pull pranks on each other and Mm -hmm. who could get away with stuff, who could, you know, who could get detention, (laughs) all those things. So it it was pretty fun. But at home... My mom was, like I said, she was very high functioning. So people really didn't know, like none of my friends at school knew that my mom, you know, was having a hard time with substance abuse. And although I found out recently that one of my friends after high school would stop by to smoke weed with my mom, I didn't know that. <laughs> so. But you know what, as an adult, I look back at that and I think about my, you know, I think about the fact that it was something that was healing for my friend. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy that my mom could be there for her in that way. But anyway, um, so I, I guess at in adulthood, that's kind of when I went into the whole, like, really deeply into church. When I was 21, I actually had had a little bout of just of being outside of the church and, you know, partying a lot and stuff like that. So I decided to go back to church. I got into like a charismatic church. It offered all the things that I talked about earlier. Um, initially, it seemed like it was something that I wanted to be a part of. I definitely felt that, you know, it, now I realize it's it's more of like an energy thing or, or responding to like high resonance. But at the time I thought, you know, you could only get into that like positive mindset and that place of peace. If you were like worshiping God, you know,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: now I've experienced it with lots of different, you know, in lots of different settings. And, and I'm grateful that I understand that now, but at the time I just thought, you know, We had cornered the market on peace and happiness, and that's where it was, and that's where you had to be. So I stayed in the church for many years. Um, I got married the first time when I was 27, and I married a classic narcissist. (laughs) It was, I I was married to him for 12 years. Um, We had two kids together. It was pretty horrific. Looking back now, I can see where, where my, the things that I grew up with and the wounds that I still had and the ways that I processed things kind of set me up to, you know, to attract a person that would thrive Mm -hmm. with me as Mm -hmm. a narcissist. So I look at that now and I think, okay, you know, not that I, I didn't know any better, but. I do recognize that, like, had I had more healing or had I, you know, invested more in myself or even gone to counseling back then, maybe, maybe I would have had a little more understanding of myself and then not gotten into that situation. But either way, it is what it is now. And my kids are, you know, the result of that. And I'm grateful that I have them. But I think. The thing the the common thread throughout my life, whether it be with my mom, whether it be with the church or with my ex-husband, is that I have always been taught that I need to be grateful for everything mm. and I think that that taught me to some extent to really bypass the things that were going on to not call them you know exactly what they were to not say abuse when it was abuse right. And that's unfortunate, you know, because right. I really <laughs> I really endured a lot of stuff over the years because I was taught, you know, I needed to look for what I could be grateful for and also that I needed to have grace for other people and cover, you know, cover them when they're struggling because that's what we do. And now looking back, I'm just like sometimes when I think about the things that I've been through, I'm like pissed, you know, and I'm like mm-hmm wish I could go back into that moment and tell them what I really think you
0: know well and it's interesting because it's like all quote-unquote in good intention Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean like that's what's so infuriating about it all I think for a lot of people who've been through the deconstruction reconstruction process is that it's when you start to look back and you see all of these things like oh gratitude right like that's a good thing like that's not a bad thing but then we can use gratitude in such a way to cover serious trauma and then allow that trauma to continue Absolutely. so it it can actually be a very negative thing we need to be able to call things what they are when they happen so that we can actually get the care and the support that we need in that moment so yeah I can I can identify with that myself.
1: Yeah, probably everyone can. I I don't think that people would stay in those situations if they didn't have some type of coping mechanism to get them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To survive it, or either that or they don't survive it. Sadly, you know. I am now remarried, and my husband is a wonderful person, and he's not a narcissist. <laughs> Thank
0: God. Hey, okay, that's that's progress. <laughs>
1: I, he and I actually dated for a about a year long distance, which gave us a lot of time to communicate and learn a lot about each other. So I always tell people, you might think that long distance is hokey or that it's stupid or that it, you know, a lot of people say I could never do it. But I think it was the best thing for me because it definitely gave me a very strong foundation with him mm-hmm. to build with. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful for that because we still communicate very well and we've been married for seven years now. So Oh wow. Yeah. Okay.
0: What has been the more or the more what has been the most challenging thing that you've been through that has challenged your mental health?
1: I think the thing that I probably still struggle with even though I've been in counseling for a year and a half now. I think that I still struggle with I guess at at the core of it it's like self-worth because I still have a hard time you know asking for help when I need it at home or sometimes if I'm feeling a certain way and I want to talk to my husband about it I'll feel like you know I don't really want to burden him with this or I I feel like In this season, especially, I feel like there's always something wrong, not necessarily with anything he's doing, but I just feel like, oh my gosh, I'm a freaking hot mess. Like this man has to deal with all of this day in and day out. And it has to become like tiring for him as well, because I know I'm exhausted a lot of the time. But I, you know, I do kind of go into it letting him know that I'm getting better at it. And I'll say to him, you know, this is what I need from you right now. I just need you to listen to me, because this is what I'm going through. And I'm still learning so much about myself and figuring myself out. And he is kind of my best friend. So, you know, I'm like, sorry, but you wear a couple of hats here. And <laughs> that's just the reality of it. So I'll, you know, share different things with him. But it is, it's good as well, because um You know, if there's something that I do, a behavior or something that he just doesn't understand, when I share different things about my past or about different traumas, a lot of times I will be able to connect the dots. And as I'm sharing that with him, he's like, oh, okay, now it makes sense.
0: So being able to talk and being able to openly share where you're at is a very healing experience.
1: It is because I'm a verbal processor. So, hey, me too. We wear
0: I have my list of people.
1: Wow, we need we need like an organization that we can join like all of us talked a lot.
0: <laughs> Cuz I have to talk like every day. Like I have people that are on my list that I need to if they don't answer I go to the next one. I hate to say that but it's true. I have a list of people that I have to call because I'm a verbal processor. I have to process through things. Absolutely. <laughs> 100%. And so looking at this Looking at your story, looking at what you've been through, what have you found has been the most beneficial thing to help you overcome?
1: I think that therapy was definitely very important because it helped me to identify, like, sometimes when people get a diagnosis, Mm -hmm. they make it their whole identity. It's like, okay, I am, you know, I am CPTSD. And And I think that that that's okay if that's where they are and that's what they need to do at the time. But for me, it helped me more to separate it from myself and to say, like, this is something that affects me, but it, it, it doesn't necessarily define me. And so I can kind of hold it over here because now I can see what it is and I can name it for what it is.
0: Yes. Let's go back, though. Okay. Tell me your journey about getting diagnosed.
1: Okay, so I started to have some situations arise where partially because of deconstruction, the relationships that I had that were really close, especially within the church, were really starting to like become very disconnected.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so having had the the abandonment in my past, it really was very triggering to have people, again, not there for me or not mm-hmm. connecting to me on a regular basis. So, and and especially because when you don't have that in your family or or you had it but then you don't have it, you look for it elsewhere, right? So my church kind right. of became where, where I was really depending on that connection. And so so anyway, I just started to have these like times where I would just start crying and I couldn't stop. I just felt like I was so sad and just like didn't know what to do and was really kind of grieving those relationships and I also because of the way that I had always done life where we didn't call things what they were when times in my life um, came where grief would have been appropriate I didn't grieve so then when things like this would happen, it was like everything would come to a head again because I had shoved right. all this stuff down.
0: And then it all becomes overwhelming Absolutely. and you can't handle it and you shut down.
1: And, you, and you're like, am I crazy? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what to do with this, right? So right. I decided to you know, go into counseling. And when I did and I started to share with um, my therapist what I had going on, and then I was diagnosed with CPTSD and ADHD, I was kind of like, oh. So then I started looking at things. And of course, with social media, there's all these like different graphics that come up that say things like ADHD paralysis and things like that, that I was experiencing that I never understood or had even heard of. So Mm -hmm. it just kind of opened this whole new world to me where I finally could could understand like why I was doing things the way that I was, or like I said, responding the way that I did to things. And because I now understood it and where it came from, I was able to choose something different.
0: So being able to assess allowed for options.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And also allowed me to see for the first time in my life that I had choices. Mm -hmm. Because of course, trauma is, is that feeling of I have no choices, right? Like, right. I have no control right now and I have no choices. And so every time that something would come up for me in in counseling, I would be like, okay, so what am I going to do with this now? And it was very empowering. And I still, I still do that in my everyday life. I look at, you know, every time something comes up and especially if it's triggering, I, I say to myself, what are my choices right now? Because I have them. I might not like any of them, but I have them.
0: So, When things become overwhelming and you feel like you can't do anything, you ask yourself, what are my choices?
1: Yes. Yeah. I have to stop. I usually do a little bit of breathing to kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, ground myself um, first, but then I'll say, okay, you know, what are my choices right now? Because if I don't ask myself and I don't, then I won't discover them. If I'm really like, you know, if I'm having anxiety or whatever, I I just won't. So it it also kind of redirects me so that I can be in like solution mode instead of problem mode. So yeah, it's, it's tough. And I do that with a lot of people too, because I see it now that I recognize it in me, of course, I see it in other people as well. And when someone is like freaking out and they're just like, I don't know what I'm going to do right now. Like, I don't, you know, this is terrible and this is what's going on you know I, I i don't i don't want to make it sound like i just pound them with something but i i usually will listen for a while and then i'll say okay well let's think about this for a moment what are your choices right now you know what mm-hmm. what can you do that's different and even if it's nothing that's a choice
0: yes nothing is a choice
1: so but acknowledging that is empowering because mm-hmm. i chose nothing it didn't it wasn't all i had i chose it
0: right Allowing that autonomy, giving yourself the ability to make the choice and giving that power back to you. Because the one thing that trauma will do is it will strip you of control and it makes you feel like you have no, you have no control over your life and what's happening. And part of regaining your ability to control your life is being able to understand that I have some of that back. Even if it is small things. Yes. Like, what am I going to eat for breakfast this morning? (laughs) Just even throwing those things in and breaking that down can give you a sense of control and stability that you might not otherwise have.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I love the word autonomy because that's something that I didn't feel like I ever had within Mm -hmm. the church. Mm Mm-hmm. And I definitely didn't feel like I had it concerning God. And so now I love to tell people, God created me as an autonomous, intelligent being. That's how we're made,
2: Mm -hmm. you
1: know? And, and of course I get a lot of pushback for that, but I'm just like, no, like he doesn't make you do anything. You are allowed to choose. He created you to be able to make choices. So yeah, that's been really freeing. (laughs)
0: Is there anything in addition that I've not touched on that you think is really, really important?
1: Um, I just want to say that for anybody who is um, who is struggling with, you know, whatever's going on with them, it's, it is really important to understand what it is, you know, to be able to name it, not because it has to be, you know, who you are, but because... We can't advocate for ourselves if we don't know what, what it is that we need, right? And we can't know what we need if we don't know what it is that we're dealing with.
0: There's a quote that I used to hold on to in my own life that states, you cannot change or heal what you do not acknowledge. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of that naming is that we have to be able to acknowledge it In order to change or heal it. Yes, absolutely. And living in a world where we just push it away and we drown it or we pretend it's not there, we're just living in a world of avoidance until it becomes a bigger issue. Right.
1: And the other thing is, now that I've known what I have going on, not only do I advocate for myself, but I also make accommodations for myself. So where I struggle, I have tried to find different tools that will help me to continue to move forward and be successful in whatever it is that I'm trying to do. So for instance, ADHD, I make lists all the time. I have to, I will forget. I am like, you know, shiny, squirrel, whatever. Like I cannot stay focused on things like for long periods of time. So I am constantly writing down, this is what I need to get done today. I I number them what's most important, you know, priority wise. And then I just keep going back, you know, and if it's something within my workspace where I need, like, I can't handle things well. Like if I'm focused on something and somebody walks in and interrupts me and they want me to stop and focus on what they're doing, my brain does not work like that. So like, I need you to come in and give me a moment to finish my thought with what I'm doing. But if I don't say that people don't know. And so then, it's triggering, right? Because now I have stress mm-hmm. of this thought that I know I'm about to lose, and then this trail that this person's about to take me on. So, yeah, we have to, like I said, if we can't identify it, we can't like advocate for ourselves, we can't set good boundaries with other people, and we can't care for ourselves well in the environments that we're in so that we you know, can be happy where we are like in my job right now, because I'm able to do that because I have been able to say things and because I do kind of push back if something doesn't feel right to me now, I never would have done that before. You know, I never would have stuck up for myself because I didn't think that I was worth that. And I didn't think that it was, it just wasn't anything in my toolbox, you know,
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. But mm-hmm.
1: now that I've been, like I said, in therapy for like a year and a half and I have done a lot of work and a lot of healing, I'm just really grateful that my life looks very different than it did a year and a half ago.
0: In hearing that, it sounds like therapy has been, I mean, you've kind of already shared this, but I want to, I want to talk about it too. I. It sounds like therapy has been something that's mm-hmm. been a very healing uh, experience for you. And it's actually resulted in change behavior, changed, a uh, changed life. Yes. But that didn't happen overnight. It took work, I would assume. But therapy was the was the venue that got you there.
1: Yeah, it was, and I think that it's it's good to understand that there are thousands or millions of therapists available to us, and mm-hmm. that. It's okay if you don't mesh well with the first person or the second person or the third person you meet with but that it is important enough to keep going until you find a person that you do mesh well with. For me, I need someone who who is definitely like sensitive to the fact that I've been through trauma, who doesn't push me I'll say this, that knows when to push me and when not to, right? Because I do yeah. need sometimes to have like the mirror held up and and for the person to say, this is not a healthy behavior right now, like, we need to talk about that. And you need to have more awareness about it. And, and sometimes that's enough is just to say, okay, we've identified it and just let me process it for a while. But then there are times when, because I've like, maybe I've been triggered about somebody like trying to force me to do something recently. And that just sets me off. And then I go into a therapy session. And if my therapist is then like pushing about something, like that's not a good time to push, right? So somebody that is is somewhat intuitive but also really gets to know their clients well. So, Mm -hmm.
0: yeah, well, I think that therapy can be a very powerful experience, but it's all about finding the right therapist and finding the right treatment modality for you. And so for those who are um, interested in therapy and, or who have gone to a therapist and had a negative experience, um, my first encouragement to you is don't give up. Keep keep searching. Keep looking because it really can be a powerful experience.
1: And you're worth it.
0: You are. <laughs> and so is Joanne. <laughs> and I'm so happy that you joined this podcast today. Thanks. Um. Do you have any questions? Is there anything that you'd like to to really talk about before we wrap things up?
1: I don't know. I just, the only other thing I can say is that when you get into a place where you're honoring yourself more, Mm -hmm. you'll start to follow your dreams a little more as well, because you won't have, you know, all of the fears and the hangups that you used to have, or that used to stand in the way, or the you know, negativity in your own mind telling you that you can't do it, or all the reasons you can't do it. So that's why I ended up, you know, going to school for immigration law because it was something that I was really passionate about. Um, I had been advocating for a while, and I mean, I'm old, so like going to school was a big deal for me.
0: And I actually forgot about immigration law. So tell us really quickly what you're oh, doing. Okay. So let's promote, let's promote you.
1: I, so I am an immigration specialist. I work for a nonprofit and I basically do family-based immigration cases now, which is where people come and they, you know, they need applications filled out for different things like green card or work authorization or whatever. I don't actually work asylum cases yet, but I'm working towards that. That's kind of my goal. But I have to shadow a lawyer for about a year before I can do that. But I've applied for my partial accreditation, and I hope to get that soon, which you know allows me to continue doing what I'm doing. It'll also allow me to accompany clients to like immigration appointments and things like that if they want me to go. Oh wow! Yeah. So, um, but the reason I got into it was because I went to the border in 2019, was able to okay. experience. Hearing the stories of people that were migrating and why, and, you know, we got to talk Mm -hmm. to Border Patrol, we got to just kind of really get lots of different perspectives about what was going on. And I just wanted to do something. You know, I just, I was like, I need to do something helpful in this situation. So what's, what's available? You know, like, how can I make an impact? So um, outside of like the actual work, I do some advocacy, like I'll hop on Zoom calls with senators and things like that and talk about Mm -hmm. policies and, you know, where we are with things and what reform we really need. Sometimes there's things that come up that are concerning, like there's, you know, kids in a detention center that have terrible things going on. And I'll reach out to their offices about that kind of stuff as well. So. Okay. But yeah, that's that's kind of where I am but I love it. I love being around people of all different cultures and languages and you know um, I just I don't know I always have loved that, but it's almost like I'm just so excited to be able to help them in some way and so and I know that sometimes they're not welcomed or treated well. so when they come here, I just try to make sure that they really feel welcomed.
0: Well, I'm happy that you're there. And it sounds like your experience, while it has been traumatic in your personal life, you're using that to help others. And I think that's one of the more powerful, one of the more powerful messages that I'm getting the more and more interviews I do um, is really seeing how people have taken what has happened to them and transformed that. To help others, and you're doing it. Yeah. So
1: it's definitely somebody said to me recently. You know, had you not walked through the traumatic things that you had, you may not be able to um, connect as easily with people that have gone through these different traumas that they through. And I was just like, you're right. You know, that's that's a really cool point. (laughs) But yeah, I'm definitely Mm -hmm. way more sensitive to those things and in, in the way that I handle them and the way that I handle them sharing their stories. And, you know, so sure. But thanks.
0: Absolutely. Well, I want to say thank you so much for joining our show. Is there anything that you'd like to promote?
1: I just, I would like to promote people just really listening to um, people that live a different experience than they do. You know, no matter what that looks like, no matter what people group it may be that they belong to, if there's something that divides you from another person, I encourage people to seek out someone from that people group and to listen to their story.
0: Okay. And with that, Joanne, I want to thank you so much for coming on to Mental Health Uncovered. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember that Mental Health Uncovered does not provide any type of therapeutic, clinical, psychiatric, or medical advice and is intended for entertainment purposes only. If you need such care, I encourage you to find such a professional in your community. You can locate and access your local crisis line by calling 988. Thanks again for listening.